0: All right, so you you guys know me I love I love to start sermons off with a story or an illustration or a quote or, or an observation or something like that, uh, some sort of an attention grabber. I love to do that because part of it I think can help set us up to to hear the text well, to understand what God is trying to speak to us uh, today through through uh, the book of John. And so that's what I like to do. And so this week, as I was racking my brain, I just could not, I just could not come up with something that helped illustrate the text. And here's why. Jesus is just too incredible. He, he's just too incredible. He's, he, in this discourse that we're going to see, this somewhat of a teaching, somewhat of a conversation that Jesus has with this crowd of people that turns into a group in a synagogue at some point. He walks over there into a synagogue and continues this conversation. What we see is that Jesus is just an incredibly skilled teacher. He has points, he does things, he concludes using those same points again. He's just a, he, he's an incredibly skilled teacher, but even so, if you look at the content of what Jesus is saying, he can't just be a teacher. The things that Jesus says about himself, the claims that he makes are audacious claims. So Jesus has to be uh, what he says he is, or he's some sort of madman. Right? This is, if you really go to the Gospels, if you really go to John, if you really read it and you really see what Jesus said about himself, they are big claims. Right? In our society, it's really popular to say, oh, he was a good teacher, he was a great guy, he was this, this. If you really look at what Jesus said, you're going to go, this guy was absolutely insane. If you really look at it, unless you begin to go, unless. Those things are true about himself. And so I, I could have come up with an illustration that shows Jesus has immense skill as a teacher, but he also makes these big, huge claims about himself that if they're true, which I think they are, should absolute, absolutely change our lives, should, should absolutely change how we think about Jesus. Okay, and so we're going to be in John chapter 6. You can begin to turn there now. And, And we're going to see this conversation that Jesus has with the group of people that he just fed the 5,000 households that he just fed food to, where he took bread from a kid and fish from a kid and he multiplied this so that everybody could eat. We're gonna look at this conversation that Jesus has with them after that. And this is what we're gonna see in the conversation today. Jesus does three things. The first thing that he does is he confronts the crowd. He confronts them, okay? The second thing that Jesus does is he invites the crowd into a different way of life, into different understandings. Jesus invites the crowd. And then third, what we're going to see is Jesus reveals things to the crowd. He's going to reveal heavenly things to the crowd. And that's what we're going to see today. And then as he closes this discourse up, he does all three of those things interchangeably again in a short, sweet summary of what he'd been saying to them. And so that's what we're going to see Jesus do today. We're going to see him confront, invite, and reveal heavenly things. So let's hop into John chapter 6, we're going to be in verse 22. It's a lot of verses, but we're going to hit them in, in smaller sections. So we'll read 22 through 26. Read with me in your heads. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Okay, let's... Let's stop right there. I don't know what happens with you guys when you walk into a room of people that miss you or are looking for you, but when I walk into a room, because every once in a while, maybe three times in my life, I've walked into a room and people have been like, hey, Anthony, we missed you. Where you been? And I'm like, hey. Like That's what I do when I walk into a room when a group of people are excited to see me, right? And I start rapping and, and it's, just, it's a whole thing, okay? Jesus, when he has this group of people that he just fed, because we know he loves them and cares about them, they look for him. They can't find him. They're like, how did he get across? And we know that he walked across the sea. When they find him, they go, Jesus, when did you get, how did you get here? And, and Jesus does what I wouldn't do. Jesus decides, this is what, I'm going to take a moment to confront you. I'm going to take a moment to instruct you. It is important to Jesus that he has the crowd examine what's really in their hearts. And so the crowd who I think is probably excited to see Jesus like, hey, it's the bread guy, it's the buffet guy. Like they're, they're coming up and Jesus goes, no, I, no. You don't don't even want me for signs. Like you don't even want to see miraculous God signs from me. You just want me because I gave you a bunch of food. Jesus is willing to confront in order to instruct us. Jesus is willing to confront that crowd in order to instruct them. He wants them to examine their hearts. This is not the first time Jesus wants this sort of an idea examined in people's hearts in the book of John. If you remember in John chapter 4, a similar situation happened. It seems that Jesus wants to confront the crowds that follow him, wanting to use him for what he can give them. He wants to confront that very heart in them. He wants to say, you're following me just for what I can give you, not for who I am. Jesus wants to confront that in this crowd. And if Jesus wanted to confront that in this crowd, and John wrote this after Jesus ascended to heaven, hoping that all might find life in these words, Jesus wants to confront us with that idea as well. Each of us in this room, why are you here? I think Jesus would ask you, why are you here? What's the reason? Listen, as a pastor, I'm, I'm super excited for anybody in this room. I love when there are people that don't follow Jesus that are in this room. I love it. And usually when those people are in this room, the first thing I choose not to do with them is to confront them. But Jesus is so different than me. Jesus thinks it's so important that all people confront what's in their hearts. And Jesus wants to ask us the question, why are you here? Are you here for what I can give you? All right, let's fast forward to, to, to right now in this room. Are you, are you at church because you want blessings? I know that's some people's reason. Are you at church because you've heard, you know, you can get good things and get good relationships and get good morals? Is, is, is that why you're here? Jesus would confront that. Jesus wants us to examine our hearts We need to understand and we need to think through why are we in this room? Why are we trying to follow Jesus? Why are we trying to get to know him? And what Jesus is telling us in this text and in John chapter 4 we talked about a couple months ago is if you're here just for what I can do for you and what I can give you and the blessings I can rain down you're here for the wrong reasons. Jesus wants you to be here for him. That he is better than any of those blessings. That he himself is better than anything that he can give you. That the things you're searching for, you can only truly find in him. And Jesus wants to confront that crowd with this idea. And he wants to confront us with that idea. The Jewish people, they they wanted an input-output God. But that's not the sort of God that they're going to get. They want to input works or whatever and and get output of blessings from God. But Jesus just says, that's not the sort of God that I am. It's a a Christian cliche. We say this, and there's uh, even like spoken word popular videos about this, is this idea that I don't follow a religion. I I, I have a relationship. It's a cliche. And it's a cliche for a reason, because that is what Jesus is presenting in the Gospels. He's not presenting a religion where you do all these things in order to get to him. He's presenting a relationship with God that will forever change you. That's who Jesus is. And so we need to confront in our hearts, why am I here? And if you're here for the wrong reasons, I'm not saying don't be here anymore. What I'm saying is change the reason you're here. Instead of look for those blessings solely, solely realize that Jesus says he wants you here for him. Okay, let's keep going in the text. So Jesus confronts the crowd, but then he invites the crowd into a different way of life. Verse 27. So he this is mid-sentence essentially for him or mid-conversation. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay, let's stop right there. So Jesus is like, listen, you are too often looking and working and trying to get food that just perishes. Work for the food instead that gives you eternal life. And so the crowd reacts how I react. How? <laughs> right? Okay, Jesus, help us. Like, what? How do we do this? How do we work for this food? And then Jesus says some really good news to me. He says, The work of God is to believe in him who he sent, to believe in Jesus, the sent one, the chosen one, the Messiah, the Christ. That's the work of God. So Jesus is inviting them into a new way of life. Their old way of life was if we do certain things, if we input certain things, God gives us blessings. And Jesus is going, listen, I'm God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. All I want you to do is to believe in me. We have to remember this word in the Greek is a, it's probably a little bit more robust than our English word for believe. This word believe in the Greek, it does mean to like cognitively cognitively ascend to and ascribe to an idea and say, hey, I think that's true. That is what believe means in the Greek. But it also has this deep and strong connotation of trust, really of entrusting oneself to. And so when Jesus says the work of God is to believe, he's not just saying, hey, just go around saying this is true. What he is saying is, I want you to entrust yourself to me. I want you to trust me. Jesus is relational. The God of the universe is relational. Right, it's not a huge list of all these things that you have to do, it's simply trust in him. That's the work of God. That's how they get this eternal bread that Jesus keeps talking about. For some of us in the room, that's great news, right? If that's the work of God is simply to believe and trust in him, that's great news. And for, that, it's great news for me. I'm bad at following rules, right? I'm just bad at following rules. I don't know what happened or why, but if there's a rule, especially if it's arbitrary, I'm like, not going to do that, right? Or if there's even just like, here's what you got to do. Like, I could even try my hardest and it's like, oh, I, I, I can't do it. Like, I just, I can't follow rules sometimes. I can't. And so when Jesus, when they ask Jesus, hey, how do we get this eternal bread? What's the work we got to do? And Jesus doesn't say, hey, all of Leviticus. My heart goes, yes. This is good news for me because I, if it's just trusting, I think I can trust. For some of us, though, this is scary news. This is scary news, that Jesus, a man from 2,000 years ago, who didn't speak our language, is asking you to trust him without you physically seeing him. That's scary, but that is what Jesus is asking, that you would trust him. That's what our relationship with God looks like. It's taking his hand. I used this illustration a few months ago. I'm going to use it again. I'll retire it after this time. But our trust in God to me reminds me of Aladdin. Okay? Bear with me. You got Aladdin and Jasmine. They're hanging out. All of a sudden, the palace guards are after them, if you know the Disney movie. They're running away. Aladdin knows if he jumps out this one window, there's a pile of sand down there at the bottom. Jasmine doesn't know that. She's been hanging out in the palace with Raja. And so Jasmine doesn't know what's going on. And, she, and, and Aladdin turns to her and just goes, he doesn't have time to explain that what's going on. And he just goes, do you trust me? And he reaches out his hand. And Jasmine should have said no. But she just kind of goes, whoa, whoa, whoa I, what? And he goes, do you trust me again? And Jasmine decides to take his hand, they jump, they land in the sand, and then the guards still get them. And so the illustration breaks down. But I think our relationship with God is a lot like that sometimes. It's God reaching out, saying, do you trust me? Take my hand. I know this doesn't make sense, but do you trust me? Take my hand. That's what our relationship with God looks like entrusting ourselves to him even when it doesn't make sense. That's what Jesus is inviting those people in that crowd to. That's what he's inviting us to, to just reach out and to take his hand, to trust him, to entrust ourselves to him. Okay? So Jesus Jesus, uh, uh, invites, Jesus confronts first, and now we're going to see Jesus begin to reveal some heavenly things, some, a couple heavenly things in particular. So let's go to John verse 30, and we're going to read through 36. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Can we pause there for a second? I love this. Like, they're just, they're, they're, they're idiots, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. I'd probably be saying the same thing. And so, some of you are like, that's messed up. You shouldn't call them idiots. But, like, the, just yesterday... Jesus gave them a whole bunch of food and then like disappeared, right? Like they're like, what work do you do? The only thing I could think is maybe the disciples because they were handing out the food were kind of going up and handing it to different groups and going like, hey, we made this for you. Don't, Don't talk to Jesus about that. Don't mention that we said that we made it, but like it was like, I don't know why they're going, what work do you perform? And yet that's what they say. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus is beginning to reveal some big things to this crowd. They go, okay. prove to us that you're the chosen one. Prove to us, show us a sign, do something. Our fathers had manna. That's why we knew we could trust Moses because one time Moses prayed and then all this manna came and 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 that's how we know we could trust the old religion that we had. But how do we trust you, Jesus? And Jesus essentially goes, you're not getting it. That was a shadow of what, what God really wanted to do. I am, Jesus is what God really wanted to send. Jesus is the bread that really is what God wanted to do. And so Jesus just spells it out for them. He goes, I am the bread of life. You're finding life in all sorts of things. I am the bread of life. Anyone that c- it comes to me won't be hungry. Anyone that believes in me won't thirst. That's who Jesus says that he is, that he is the bread of life. He is revealing a marvelous and magnificent truth to that crowd that we get to hear 2,000 years later. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is who we need. This isn't what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying, you have to really eat me, right? Like he, he's using a metaphor. He's showing that these past two signs that God has done, with, first with the manna, and then Jesus multiplying the bread, those were only shadows and illustrations to show who Jesus is. Jesus is the bread of life he is the bread that gives life so what Jesus is claiming what Jesus is revealing to us is that if you have a hunger he's the only one that can truly fill it I'll even say this if you have physical hunger Jesus is the only one that can truly fill it why because you're going to die one day And only Jesus can stop your hunger the way that it eats away at all of us. Your physical hunger. But he's also speaking to each and every hunger in you. He's not just being physical hunger. He he understands that us humans walk around hungering for perishable things, thirsting for all sorts of things, hungering for all sorts of things that will not leave us satisfied for more than a moment or a season. And he's saying, "I can satisfy you. I can fill that emptiness. I can quench that thirst." That's what Jesus is saying. Only Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the source of life. This is a big claim. This is why I say, if you really listen to Jesus, and you're kind of in the room and you're going, well, I just think he was a good teacher. Was he? Because he claimed some big things. If I'm sitting down with someone and they go, hey, Anthony, guess what? I'm the bread of life. I go, I'm going to get some new locks on my doors, and I, I, like, I'm, going to feel, like, I'm going to be scared, okay? Jesus is making a big claim that your life is dissatisfied, that your life is empty, that you walk around thirsty all the time, and only Jesus can solve that. Only Jesus can fill you. Only Jesus can quench your thirst, and all you have to do is to trust. Reach out, take his hand. That's what Jesus is revealing in this discourse that he is the bread of life. He's going to reveal more of his heavenly work and heavenly things. In verse 37, we're going to read 37 through 51 here. It's a a lot of verses, but we'll be okay. It says this. This is Jesus continuing to have this discourse. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because they said, he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So, Jesus begins to reveal more to them. Jesus essentially says, hey, everything happening right now, this is God's work. This is what the Father is doing. This is how he's working. And then uh, when you see Jews in there realize in John, often Jews means the Jewish leaders. It was kind of like just shorthand way that John referred to the Jewish leaders. Or sometimes when John's using the word Jews, he, he wants it clear to probably Gentile readers that there were, this was how the Jewish people uh, received Jesus in a variety of ways. And so anyways, the, the, the Jewish leaders, I believe, are, are grumbling. They're going... <laughs> This guy's crazy, right? Like they're just turning each other. Like what is he saying right now? He's saying he came from heaven. He's the bread from heaven. Uh, we know Joseph and his mom. we know his mom and dad. Like we know, we know like this guy's a human, right? And then Jesus goes, listen, <laughs> I know you're mad right now. I know you're, you're grumbling right now, but this is the work of God. There's nothing you can do about it. Like, all the things you're mad about is what God is doing right now and right here. That's what Jesus is telling them. And you see, just Jesus interchangeably uh, refer to himself as God, refer to his Father. This is where the Trinity becomes a real big mystery. There's just a lot that Jesus is revealing here that can be heavy and difficult. In fact, I, I, I do want to pause for a moment like, and take like a theological side note. Do you notice what Jesus is doing throughout this discourse? On the one hand, he's going this. He's saying, hey, believe in me. I'm the bread of life. Entrust yourself to me. Like Jesus wants people to believe in him of their own volition. And yet, Jesus goes, hey, if you do believe in me, it's the work of God. If you do come to me, it's just because God the Father is working in you, revealing to you that I'm the bread of life. It sounds like a a contradiction. Okay, I've got to believe in you. I've got to choose to believe in you. And then Jesus goes, and yet God is the one who saves me. God is the one who causes me to see you as bread of life. It sounds like a contradiction. But somehow it isn't. Somehow, when you read the Holy Scriptures, when you read the Bible, when you read what all these Jewish people thought about God, they thought both things were true. Right, D.A. Carson, uh, a theologian who wrote one of the best commentaries on on the Gospel of John, he says this about John. He says this, John, the, the author, seems perfectly content with expressing a compatibilism, okay? If you didn't know what compatibilism is, neither did I. And so I Googled it, and compatibilism is the belief which uh, says that free will and determination are mutually compatible and that it's possible to believe in both without being logically inconsistent. Okay so all these philosophical people logical people that came up and they, they came up with this incompatibilism and they'll show how it's not logically inconsistent or whatever it's that's beyond me at that point I go I'm not I know smart and so I don't I don't know how to say this okay I don't know how to I don't know how to understand this but the Jewish people and John the disciple of Jesus feels perfectly fine saying what you do matters Your choices are your own. You are responsible for your choices. And yet God saves completely on his own. God is sovereign over all. For us, that's hard because we've lived the last 2,000 years and churches have split over this idea, right? Like one camp's like, "It's no, it's all like this. And another church is like, no, it's all like this. And what we see in the Bible is both things being expressed and we just have to let it melt our brains a little bit, right? We just have to, this is how big God is. His ways are so confusing that we as humans sometimes have to go, I got to pick one or the other when God says, hey, it's, it's both. And you go, God, how do I, how, how, tell me, tell me how that is. And God goes, nah, I'm good. Just like figure out, like, I'm the bread of life. And then you go, but I thought I wasn't the one figuring it out. And then you're just getting an argument with God. It's pointless, okay? But this is what we see throughout the scriptures. That what you do matters. That your choices are your own. That you're held accountable for what you choose to believe. And yet God Owns salvation. God owns history. That's who God is. That's who God is. And if you know me well enough, I wrestle with that those very two ideas probably once a month. And so it's not necessarily easy, the lofty things of God. But it almost argues to me that, 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 that it that he's not man-made that he's not some human creation, that God gives us these ideas about himself that we could kind of grasp and understand, but then also not grasp and understand. That sounds like what it must be like to be in the very presence of God. That's who God is. Jesus is revealing that he's the bread of life, and that his father is doing this work in order to save. That's who God is. You don't save yourself God does. Let's keep going. So we've watched Jesus confront, we've watched him invite, and we've watched him begin to reveal things. And now in the closing of this discourse, we're going to watch Jesus do all three of those things kind of interchangeably. Verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Okay, so Jesus reveals all these heavenly things. The Jewish leaders then go, he wants us to be a cannibal. Are you guys hearing this, right? Like, I think they're in the synagogue at this point. They're going out to the crowd. They're like, this guy wants us to eat him. Well, uh, game over, Jesus. Like, that, that, that's weird, okay? We don't do that. That's, that's yucky, okay? Like, they're just like, that's not okay. And I love Jesus. Instead of, again, if I'm a pastor, I'll go, this is what I would do if I was teaching that. I'll go, no, I'm using a metaphor, okay? I don't know if you know what a metaphor is, but you should, okay? I'm using a metaphor. That's what I would do. Jesus, he just doubles down on the metaphor, he goes, yeah, you have to eat me. You have to drink my blood. And I, I, don't, I think he does it to confront, but I think he also does it to reveal. He's confronting them, I think, going like, yes, this is how it is. But I think he's also revealing, look, your lives are so centered on eating things that won't give you eternal life. It is very serious business following me. So yes, it has to, in a metaphorical sense, look like you feast on me, like you drink my blood. That's how serious following Jesus is. Your life sustenance has to be Jesus if you're following Jesus. He has to be what you can't live without. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why he's using such strong and, and even kind of grotesque language because a lot of people throughout history goes, you know, Jesus is going to be kind of like this side thing. Jesus is going to be a snack. Jesus is going to be a morsel. Jesus is going to be dessert. Jesus is going to help my life. She's going to do things for me. Yeah, I'm going to say I'm going to be a Christian. Yeah, I'm going to go to church all the time. Like, yeah, I'm going to do those things. But all, when you do all that stuff in those sorts of ways, you're missing it. You're missing the point that Jesus himself said, I am life. I need to be your life sustenance. I need to be who you can't live without. And the metaphor also turns real for us because when Jesus becomes who we can't live without, we have eternal life. I'm like, I'll say this. And this may be a bad Christian thing. I'm like afraid of dying just because of like, I think it will be like a freak accident or something. That's what I'm afraid of, like pain and misery and all that. But I'm also like not afraid of dying in a real sense because of this truth, right? This is like one way it comes up a lot. People, like I like to travel. I think traveling is good. I think we should travel and all that stuff. But sometimes people are like, oh, why don't you, why don't you travel more? I'm like, I think I'll have more time in heaven, Right? I'll be able, in the resurrected life, I'm going to be able to travel a lot. Don't take that as a being condemned for traveling, please. But just see how God begins to change our heart and cause us to understand how truly he is our life sustenance. He's not just metaphorically our life sustenance, he really is our life sustenance. Death is in the world because of our sin. And Jesus is the only one who can eradicate death and give us himself, which is the bread of life. I think the other reason why he continues to use this strong analogy is because he knows how he's going to secure that life for us. He is going to literally, as he's talking to this crowd, he knows that he's about to literally give up his very flesh on the cross to die for their sins so that they don't have to die for their sins. He knows he's going to give up his very blood on the cross and let it pour out for them so their blood does not have to pour out for their sins and the consequences of sin in this world. That's why Jesus is using this analogy. He knows what he's going to do for them. And he knows that that's going to secure life for them and for us. And I think he also knows that he is more powerful than sin and death, and we see that in his resurrection. right? If you're here and you're you're not sure about Jesus, like we we really think he resurrected. And there are a lot of people around Jesus' resurrection that think they saw him, and I think they did too. And you have to wrestle with that. Because if that's true, then these claims that Jesus is making, that he's the bread of life, those must also be true as well. Jesus is the bread of life. He brings eternal life, he brings resurrection, and he uses his body and his blood to do it. May Jesus be our life sustenance. May we entrust ourselves to him completely and wholly. I know some people are going, okay, I need more of the metaphors now, though, Anthony. I don't get that. How do I feast on Jesus? What does this look like? How do I do that? I'm going to give a small example, just a small example uh, of what that looked like for me recently. I, uh, you guys, Tyler James, he, he spoke here last week, and I was texting him. We're buddies, and so I was texting him. He was asking me about something in my life, and uh, it was something kind of hard going on in my life, and so I, I said, yeah, this is going on in my life, and, and, he, and he's like, oh, man, that's, that, that's a bummer or something like that, and, and then I said something real sarcastic like, yeah, life is really easy right now, right, and ha, 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 um, and then this was Tyler's response to me sarcastically being like, life is really easy, and he goes, and yet... How did Jesus have the audacity to claim his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Seeing how Jesus reacted in times of trouble really challenges me. He retreated, prayed, waited, then came back with that holy fire. I so often go into fix-it mode instead of pray-it mode. And then I blocked his number, okay? And so... (laughs) No, I, I, I thought about what he was saying, you know. And he wasn't saying, don't complain, Anthony. But what he, what he was saying was like, Anthony, the suffering, whatever you're going through, fixing it, that, that, that's a perishable good. The imperishable good is feasting on Jesus. That's the only way our burden becomes light, is that instead of looking for all the sorts of things that we look for to satiate our hungers and to quench our thirsts, is to turn from doing it that way and turn to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, I'm trusting myself to you. What do you, how do I abide in you? How do I feast on you, Jesus? And so often it's spend time with him. Pray, read his words, let his words wash over you and speak to you. That's what it looks like to feast on Jesus. I really want to challenge us today and just ask ourselves, can you live without Jesus? If the answer is yes, maybe he's not the bread of life for you. And I would encourage you, instead of feeling guilty about that, turn to him as the bread of life. I really think it's as simple as taking his hand right? All throughout the Bible, we see people having all sorts of hunger, all sorts of thirst, and God has different ways of us dealing with those hungers and thirsts. and it's feasting on Jesus. It's finding your life sustenance in him. That's what Jesus offers. He's reaching out, saying, just take my hand and trust yourself to me. I know it's confusing. I know it's scary, but you can trust yourself to me. So church, I I pray that we would reach out, take his hand, and see that Jesus is truly the bread of life. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for revealing so much to us. Thank you for showing us that you are the bread of life. Thank you for being the bread of life. Thank you for seeing this mess that we all made with our sin, brought death upon this earth that you said you wanted to stop that. You wanted to fix that. You wanted to bring eternal life. Thank you that the way you did that was you gave up your own flesh. You gave up your own blood to do it. God, so many of us in here, we love this idea of you being the bread of life. And, then so, and, and so many of those same people in here, God, we go, I love the idea, but I don't know if I quite think that. I don't know if I quite find my sustenance in you, God. And so, God, I ask, change us. Cause us to find our life sustenance in you primarily and alone. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Only you can do that. Only you can show us how to even take your hand. Give us the ability to do that, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we need you. Amen.